If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. Podcast time. Hope all is well and you are enjoying the sunshine and, of course, the uh, the holidays. It's August and, as I said last week, we're bringing you something a little bit different. We're taking some conversations that we had at the Doki Book Festival and we're bringing them to you. And this one is a really special one because it's with Eric Lonergan and Mark Blythe. The two guys who wrote Angrynomics, but that's not all. These are deep, deep, deep thinkers on economics, on finance, on politics, on the world around us. This conversation is entitled Economics at a Crossroads. Two of the best speakers, two of the best minds. I think you'll really enjoy it. So here we go. Mark Blythe and Eric Lonergan. One of the most captivating books that I read in the lockdown is this little book here called Angrynomics by two of the finest, I think it's fair to say, and I'm not blowing smoke, I'm not blowing smoke. No, 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 but two of the finest. I thought it was shite, to be honest. (laughs) Economics. Eric Lonergan, who's obviously very self-deprecating and a local, and on the line, a Scot marooned in America. Those are kind of Elvis Costello glasses he's got. He's, He's trying to be cool, isn't he? No, these are British comedy specs. <laughs> they are actually. They've got that. They've got that look about. It. How are you? How are you, pair? I'm tropical Dublin. Yeah, I've I know. Been in I know. Well, you're looking very tropical. And the interesting thing is, I just interviewed your mother. I know. She was fantastic on that. The good Lonergan. She's no. She's the good Lonergan. <laughs> yeah. Now you've got the crap one. No, but she was. She was amazing. <laughs> yeah. She yeah. was really, really 81. amazing. Anyway, it was extraordinary. Yeah. And of course, I was into it, and she was in this and that. So. That was brilliant. And how are you, Blythe? All right? I'm surviving the lockdown. Um, Rhode Island has 75% vaccinated. And you're so, so the you're rest right. of the OECD can kiss my vaccinated ass. Nice. It's pretty good. Nice. We're getting to travel. We can do stuff. <laughs> if I want to go to the United Kingdom, I have to give one of Boris Johnson's mates 350 quid for a test. 
even though I'm doubly vaccinated. So it's nice to see there are constants in the universe. Well, listen, let us talk about the book. Let us talk about Angrynomics. I mean, who wants to take it up? Eric, you were the one who has decided to define anger. What? So, so the book yeah. comes from where? Where, where, where does the book come from? Where, how did the pair of you begin the process of writing a book? How do you get together? Yeah. Where did you first meet? All that sort of stuff. Well, we became pals. We met at a boring conference and we were the only two interesting people there, which is saying something It must have been really boring. And uh, we, we hit up a friendship. We found ourselves relentlessly arguing, arguing over drinks, as you do, yeah. as we would as well in the pub. And then we thought, listen, here's a great way to write a book. Let's just record it, transcribe it. But what were you arguing over? What were the issues? What was, what was bubbling well, under the surface? And when was yeah. this, 2010, 15? When, when did we start, Mark? So, so the bit that started to get me in this, I think, I think this is the point of entry. We started to talk about tech, and neither of us knew what we were talking about. And I became fascinated with the fact that just two years after the financial crisis, when everyone was being battered and austerity was the word of the doer and of the year, et cetera, that uh, we were all going to be replaced by robots. Right, that every car would be self-driving and all this sort of stuff. And so I remember saying to Eric, and much of this is just Silicon Valley talking their book to get gullible morons to fund unicorns. And he said, probably quite a lot. So we decided that we'd have a look at tech, we'd have a look at aging and society because we never really talk about that. And what prompted that was if you look at things like the Scottish independence vote in 2014, it's old people with assets who vote for stability of their assets and young people who don't have any assets who are like, screw it, let's take a chance, right? So we started to think tech, we started to think about intergenerational wealth, inequality, et cetera. And uh, then we started to go to football matches together and that's where the anger came up. So maybe Eric can pick up there. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we had a view about political economy. So we, we had a sense as to what was causing populism, which, which is, was the idea that there's a vacuum in our politics. So, so, so you remember, when we were growing up, politics meant something. Yeah, and politicians were big people, and you'd see them the telly. And, yeah, yeah. And, and if you voted for them, it was usually somebody who you could identify with, represented your interests if you were a worker or if you were a business person. And it made a difference which party was in power. Ireland, put to one side, is an interesting, interesting case on its own. But broadly speaking in the Western world, it made a, politics made a difference. Now, then for 25 years, it stopped making a difference to some extent, or people didn't really feel that it mattered. So this why kind do of you consensus. think that was? So why did it stop making a difference for about 25 years? I think it probably was a simple cause would be the end of the Cold War. Okay. And, and, and so the sense that, that, that politics really mattered, that this became this economic, like yourself, ultimately, we, we think of it as, as having economic origins, this consensus about how to do economics. Yeah. And we thought that because the economics didn't really matter because everyone agreed, how do you motivate populations? You motivate them with tribalism. And then I often think Ireland is a fascinating case in point because almost skipped the Cold War because you know, Ireland was ahead of the curve. We were nationalists in the 70s before. Yeah, we were, we were nationalists before anybody. Exactly. We were doing and nationalism. Then, uh, we, did, we did a property. Exactly. We, we'd be generous. We were ahead of the curve. And so we had a, we had a theory that this vacuum in economic ideas, this complacency, was resulting in, in, a, in a politics that was in turmoil and the rise of nationalism. And then I, I can remember the moment when Marx said, 
what can we say about anger? And, and that was where suddenly gave us a gap. It was like a chink in, in, in the door where suddenly we thought this could become interesting to a broader audience. So like yourself, we're motivated in communicating these ideas because ultimately economics is pretty dry or can be can unless be. you're listening to the podcast. And, uh, and plug, but you, anger, have you back. Well, anger people relate to, you know, yeah. whenever I talk to people outside of, you know, a natural interest in economics, you say it's a book about anger. People go, well, what are you saying about anger? You know, because anger matters an awful lot to people. And so that was the kind of way in. And then once we researched anger, we suddenly thought, actually, there isn't a great, you know, we're inarticulate. There is no go-to reference for different types of anger. And not only did we kind of create a little typology, but also it became a lens to make sense of a lot of what's going on. And I, I find that's one of the things that's been very rewarding about the book is people say, say to me, that can't, that those different types of anger, that makes sense. Can, can, can you tell me what, what are the different types of anger? So we really made two distinctions. One was between public expressions of anger and private expressions of anger, and which are almost like opposites. So if you can imagine uh, in, in your private life, you have a colleague who starts, say John all of a sudden starts showing up and is being a bit miserable, being quite aggressive to people. You're more likely to take him to one side and say, listen, are you all right? I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, you're going to say, is everything yeah. okay? Yeah. But in your private life, it usually tells you something's going wrong, you rather than with the world. You know, it's yes. a bit like road rage. We don't really think if there's road rage that we need, you know, better traffic signals. Now, if, if there's an Extinction Rebellion protester or a Black Lives Matter protester, you don't go up to them and say, listen, is everything all right? They're, <laughs> they're going to, if it's Extinction Rebellion, they're going to say to you, you should be angry too. Yeah. Right? So there's something interesting that private and public anger are very different. That's the first thing. And then there's two faces of, of public anger, which, and this is the football analogy, is we started, well, we're going to football matches and wondering, why is it this small group of people who are absolutely furious and they're paying good money to be furious? To be furious. And typically, let's be honest, they're men and they're and angry, you know, and violent. And, and as an economist, I'm probably like yourself, I can't stop going, why, what's the evolutionary function? Why do we have this, like, separate species of man that gets really angry? And then, you know, you'll know the angry nationalists. We suddenly put it together and went, this is interesting. We've got public and private. We've got moral outrage, which is the Black Lives Matter, the Extinction Rebellion. Most which of is arguably good anger, would you say? Good, the anger of angels which is actually goes all the way back to the Greeks. If you, if you read Aristotle, talks about anger as an appropriate response to a perceived injustice. Right, right. so you're so, affronted and you get angry back. We have a moral compass, right? And, and, and Cornell West, if you remember, there was a great interview on, on CNN that went viral during the Black Lives Matters protests. And, and the way he put it, I thought was beautiful, and it's a, Aristotelian ideas. He said, what would it say about our society if you could witness police brutality on your screen, and nobody was protesting, nobody was angry. And not get angry. Exactly. What would that say? And that would actually be a society with no moral compass. It's terrifying, actually. Right. So this is fascinating. Anger is somehow our moral arbiter. And yet, but that's not the anger of a Spurs fan against an Arsenal fan or a nationalist on the rampage. So those, again, that's the anger of devils. So there seems to be... Anger is a kind of split personality. It's, it's a moral arbiter, but it's also a precursor to, 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 to 
re- tribal rage is how we think of it in the public sphere. And then there's the private dimension. And so once you identify these types of anger, okay, one being arguably justified and the moral reaction to injustice. Yeah. And the other one being this bizarre, almost group psychology that happens to humans when we get into crowds. Yeah. Something bizarre happens. I've yeah. always been amazed, yeah. particularly if you look at English football. So they, let's say a man charged with trying to, trying to throw other man under the tube yeah. at Arsenal game. Yeah. And then they say, you know, Joe Bloggs, training accountant uh, from Chelmsford. With, there's no evidence this <laughs> yeah. guy ever got angry with anybody in their yeah. lives, but you put him into the Spurs outfit or whatever, and suddenly he gets angry, and that angry is made legitimate by the crowd. Yeah. And the crowd is the, is, is, is the thing yeah. that gives him permission to behave yeah. in this certain way. So once you both identified that type of anger, where did you take the, the argument, Mark? So just to backpedal just a tiny little bit on this, right? I actually don't like to think of it as good anger, bad anger, right? Because people who get angry turn around and say, what do you mean my anger's bad? So let me defend the indefensible for a minute. Imagine the people who are there at the January the 6th riot at the Capitol in in DC, right? They are morally affronted. They are convinced the election has been stolen. Now, from any particular value system that we may share, we might think, well, you know what? People being beaten to death by the police on camera, which you can actually verify, Good thing to be annoyed about. Fantasy story peddled by complete weirdos that you're buying into, not a good thing. But the important thing is they're both moral claims. They're both moral outrages. And the interesting part for us is how both of these things can get weaponized in politics. It's how there's a symbiosis between politicians and the media in that kind of, if you will, ideological vacuum created by the technocratic globalization period after the Cold War which should have had a big smash after the financial crisis, but was put back together by the central banks and the technocrats. The same problems festered underneath, and eventually you get this kind of populist explosion. So the anger, what we're interested in anger is less in terms of the adjudication of whether it's morally worthy or not, but how you can mobilize it in politics, right? That's the really important part. Now, having caveated that, what was your question again? <laughs> Can't remember. Uh, no, no, no. The, the question was. How do we so, bring it to? Sorry. But, you, yeah. The, the idea. So you, you've identified anger. You've identified populism. You see what I've, I've seen. What's going on? You see your Trumps, your Brexits, your various incarnations right. of a sort of so slightly inchoate nationalism, a sort of a, a kicking out, take back control. You've been yeah. shafted. He doesn't support you. Support me. So you've got this sort of inchoate sort of cacophony of. Anger, fear, entitlement, indignation. Yeah. And then you have a political movement. Yeah. And that's what we've seen everywhere. And then the book is saying, how do we parse that? How do we understand it? What do we do about it? So so what we do in the book is we divide it into, guess what, macro-angrynomics and micro-angrynomics. And macro-angrynomics are basically big financial crashes. Big financial crashes pretty much always cause right-wing populist rage. Cause a lot of people lose their livelihood, there's a great deal of unfairness in who gets bailed out, etc. So if you think about the collapse of the gold standard leading to World War I, the Great Depression, rise of fascism, right? Think about the 1970s, the inflationary crisis of the 70s, far less violent, but was also, if you will, a big system reset for capitalism. And this is when you get the neoliberal moment, the rise of central banks, the rise of technocrats, basically depoliticizing a lot of the economy. And then that all goes basically, you know, wheels for shit sometime around 2008. 
I don't know where I got that phrase from, but I'm going to keep it. What was it? Wheels uh, for ships? Wheels for ships. I don't know where that came from, but it was a good Did one. you just say whales anyway, for ships or wheels? I don't really know. I, th- I, I was reaching for something and the word whales ended up there. <laughs> this is a sign of getting old. You know when you do that when you're going for a word <laughs> and you just don't know it and you grab onto the next available word? I think I just did that. Try being a presenter, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm oh, telling no, you, there's, there's, the, the, there used to be about 10, like a Rolodex, about 10 options in my head. It's got down to two now. Very soon get to one. <laughs> and, you know, I used to pride myself and be able to just deploy that. And now it's like, Jesus, just give me one. Just let me get through <laughs> this. Give me one, exactly. So right. go on. So, so anyway, so go, to go back to it, right? So basically 2008, in a sense, should have been another one of these big resets. But what we did was we kind of smothered it with like central bank support yes. and chucking money at the problem, yeah. whatever. And then it goes up. The, the micro side of it is the other part of it. So microangrenomics. And what's that? Well, that's also what we've been doing for the past 30 years. Because, and Eric can talk more about this because he started as a labor economist. When we talk about making our labor markets more flexible and increasing efficiency, what do we actually mean? We mean make it impossible for mothers to pick up their kids. We mean pay people less and hand businesses more. We mean give people less rights to negotiate their share of productivity and labor contracts, right? So we've been doing all of these things. Product markets, we don't think about that a lot, but you know the fact that product markets have become so ruthlessly competitive, when you think about the price of certain commodities, electronics, phones, all this sort of stuff, constantly plummeting. If you're part of the supply chain for making that stuff, your margins are tiny and you can be knocked out in a second. If that's the case, the lives of workers, the lives of capitalists are much more precarious than they used to be. That creates uncertainty. That uncertainty is part of the micro side, if you will, of the anger that we're feeling. So we try and tell a macro story about how big crashes tend to promote anger, but then also how we've been fragilizing our own existence, how we've been basically making our own lives less secure. And that was an open goal for populists to come along and say, hang on a minute, what's going on here? Why is it that basically you're all working more hours for less money? Which is a fair enough question. But so you say that populism is a completely and utterly legitimate and obvious and arguably right reaction to a gradual encroachment on people's daily... And what I would yeah. put is, it's people's daily ability to wake up in the morning and not worry, right? So what we're talking about is people wake up right. in the morning and, and maybe there was a golden era, I'm not sure, right, where people woke up and said, look, my job's okay, I'm going to get reasonably well paid, I've got holiday pay... The family seem happy. Yeah. The kids are in a nice school, right? And now that same individual yeah. is waking up anxious. Yeah. Is that what we're talking about? That there's an anxiety the, that's percolated down to people's I, I lives. I think there is. And, and you know, you'll appreciate this because this is in part the fault of economics and the technocratic language. You know, again, you know, as Mark was talking about, like, what's a flexible labor market? Oh, that sounds like a good idea. That's a flexible... If, if I said, I'm going to make human beings' lives insecure, right? Yes. Like, like even I'm the term, like, kind of like labor market. No, no, no. It's, this, is the, this is human beings' livelihoods. It's not a market for labor. It's, it's very know. interesting you should mention that. Sorry to cut you off. I interviewed the president, Michael D., yesterday. wide range. Wide range, as only yeah. it can be with the yeah. president, right? <laughs> but he was making the point about home, right? Mm-hmm. And where you live and the extraordinary, the existential nature of having a home. Yeah. And then he was contrasting the, with the language of being on the property ladder. Uh-huh. 
And he says, mm-hmm. so you never ask somebody, yeah. where are you from? And somebody yeah. says, well, I'm from Galway. They never say, you say, I'm on the first rung of the property ladder. <laughs> you know? But it's, it's the same, it's it's the the same great, idea. It's a great point. Yeah. It's a great point it's because great the point. property ladder doesn't exist anywhere no. except in the language of economists. And property yeah. estate agents. And on, the, home on the home point as well, David, is that, and you'll appreciate this again, and Mark is... I'm probably a bit stricter on the kind of moral outrage, tribalism, anger of angels, anger of devils. But at the same, but the point is, the devil doesn't always show up with an angry face. The devil's cleverer than that, and he's got good tunes as well. He's got good tunes, and the point is that I love going to a football match, and I love going where the lunatics are, because the point is that tribalism is great fun. Yes, you know, and it's very liberal. We love it. You know, we, that's why we pay good money, and. And that's where, and you know, it's the same here. It's like, uh, and, and, the, and that sense of home, that sense of belonging, that sense of identity. A lot of the time it's a myth, but it's something that we're so hardwired and instinct, instinctively we want to grasp onto. The only thing I would say is that I, I do think, and, and hopefully this is one of the things that comes through in the book, is that the political class, you have to think about politicians as having incentives. And their incentive is to get elected. And they'll do anything to get elected. Sure. And there are two ways to do it. And, and we can come on to the, the contemporary. I, I love what Biden is trying to do. I love Janet Yellen. We've spoken about her because, to me, she's the brains, which is quietly, academically changing people's lives in a profoundly important way. That's good politics. That's worth fighting for. The nationalists, whether it's, you know, Orban, whether it's, you know, Turkey, whether it's Russia, whether or it's his Trump. Crowd, the Scottish nationalists. The Scots as well. You know, I can understand, you know, that to me, I, I'd rather make a difference to people's lives. That's good politics. The other stuff is dangerous. You know, it's a smokescreen. Okay, just before we, we leave that, I'm going to talk to solutions. Mark, do you think the Scottish nationalists are dangerous? I don't think nationalism's dangerous. I think that nationalists can be dangerous. Uh, and that's an important distinction. I, not, to go back to the idea of I home, am now, right? I'm now dancing on a pinhead. Explain <laughs> that to me. Well, we're talking about home, so let me give an example of this. One of the founding ideas of social democracy was the idea, in Sweden was the idea of the folkhemet, right? The people's home. The notion that we all belonged here and therefore had reciprocal obligations to each other that went well beyond and could not be described by market relationships. That's a fundamentally good idea. It's also a nationalist idea in the sense that any democratically organized society at a national level tends to speak to a notion of a national economy. And whether we're more globalized now or whatever, right, the people who live there make it. At the end of the day, as I like to say, an economy is the number of workers, the number of hours worked, and the amount of stuff that they work with. Period. That's it. So nations themselves are neither here nor there as moral constructs. There are very good nations out there. The New Zealanders got a lot of brownie points. There's very bad nations out there, and I won't mention them because I might disappear, right? So that's the empty container. Now, what does nationalism do? Nationalism in its good form basically says we have that reciprocal obligation to each other and we have been falling down on the job. And what the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s were about, and what the populists feed off of, and I agree with this reading, but not where they take it, is that the idea of this kind of, if you will, 
internationalist individualism, this cosmopolitanism where we're all citizens of the globe, was just bullshit class politics. It was a game that was played by at best 10% of the population, while everyone was stuck with declining social services and the rich making off with most of the loot. At the end of the day, if nationalists are able to call this out because our normal politicians are too afraid or too bought off to do so, then sign me up with them. I'm fine with nationalism as long as it's only small countries. It's like here. (laughs) (laughs) You can be as nationalistic as you want because you can't really do too much damage. I mean, you can kill each other. Which we we did for quite some time. And we've got a border poll coming up. Yeah. Which is, you know... I mean, that's the bit that I can't, you know, I I, I remember going up to the north. You know what it was like. I have major reservations. For me, it's 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 my antenna. I don't like it. You you just, know, and you don't, I don't, you don't like it. Good. It's usually a distraction. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Guys, let's switch to solutions, right? So we've identified the problem, we've identified where it's come from, we've identified the mistakes along the road, we've identified that the cosmopolitan elite were, as Mark said, only about 10%, and even fewer maybe than that got the actual cream on the top of the bottle for the last 20 years, and they got a lot of cream. So your inequalities are through the roof. Yeah. What can be done now for your kind of your broadly centrist worldview, your general mainstream middle of the road politics, to change this, to reverse this, to grab up by the scruff of the neck and say, do you know what, there's a way of actually taking back control, yeah. which doesn't go down the nationalist populist route. So what do you do? What are the policies? Well, what, so, so what happened was with COVID, that two of the things that we said politicians should do actually came to pass. So we talked about what economists called helicopter money. You can also call them direct monetary transfers. And that's what basically everybody did for the duration of the pandemic. So, you know, well, hey, we got that one right. The other ideas we can talk about are a little bit, in some cases, more technical. There's a whole idea of a citizen's wealth fund, a digital dividend, etc. But let's look into the world. What's out there just now? So the G7, who knows if this will get through the American Congress or whatever, right? But basically, they did something quite extraordinary. They said, look, for the past 40 years, 30 years, we've been enabling tax dodging on an epic scale by every corporation and rich individual on the planet. How about we stop that? Okay, 
that's a good start because you'll raise hundreds of billions in revenue if you do. Now, there's lots of bumps on the road. For Ireland, this may be a problem. Personally, I don't think it is. I think you go well beyond the 12% tax. You've done that stage of your development. You're in a different space. But that's a place where we can start. Now, when we were writing the book, we thought that was impossible. There was a, no, there's no way they're going to raise taxes, so we need to find other things, right? Well, maybe they're going to raise some taxes, but you can still do the other things. To me, the centerpiece of what we propose is a Citizens' Wealth Fund. Yeah. So I will let Eric talk about that. So how, how does this work? Citizens' Wealth Fund. Citizens' Wealth Fund. When I hear yeah. Wealth Fund, I always think Norway. Yeah. This is a company that got loads of oil, it's and true. they were clever about it, yeah. and now they've loads... The fascinating thing about the Norwegians is they started off with oil. Now, over 50% of the value of that sovereign wealth fund is returns, the financial returns that they've generated. Okay. So the so idea... That's, that's the dividends from the companies that they own. The value that they've created by investing, the value over 25, 30 years has compounded, I think, at about 6%. Right. And now more than half of it is due to the returns generated. So our idea is really a very, very simple one. Take Ireland as an example, but it's typical across the developed world. Ireland can issue 20-year government bonds okay. at a 1% interest rate. Now, to make that explicable to people, that, that's a fixed rate of interest. Yep. So imagine you could take out a mortgage fixed at 1% for 20 years. So you, people always you pay say, back well, 100 quid rates? a month for the next... Exactly. And people say, well, what if interest rates go up? No, that's a fixed rate of interest. Okay. So what we're proposing is, is that countries like Ireland issue... 15, 20% of GDP, but put it in a fund. So when you say issue, we borrow 15% of yeah. our total income. Sell the government bonds into the into what's called the bond market, these, these great markets that we're supposed to be terrified. They love our bonds because they're, they're lending to us at 1% for 20 years. Yeah, yeah, okay. Sell them to them. And so we get the take money. Take all the money. We take in all the money. And people go, oh, my debt's gone up. No, it hasn't because you've got money. So you're, it's, a bit, it's just like having a mortgage and buying a house. Right. Your, your, your balance sheet is balanced. You've got assets. So you've got the house there. here and the yeah. debt there. Exactly. Okay. Right. Okay. Now, instead of having a house, you could buy a house. Now, if you think, if I could borrow at 1% fixed and I can do a, a buy to let, so I could rent out a property and make 4 or 5% income, I'm in the money. Right? Yeah. You can repay the debt and in 20 years' time... The house will be worth... The house is yours. Right, because you've, you've just identified the, the wealth creation strategy of all Irish people. <laughs> right, this is what Irish people do. You know, if you ever is, talk now, to anyone, right? The thing okay. is, is that this is kind of like what one percent of the global population have been doing. I'm saying, can't the government can do this on your behalf? Right, okay. they can do it on behalf of the seventy percent of the population that doesn't have any. That doesn't assets. have any assets. But what they do is they go, we'll 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 issue a load of bonds. We'll get all of these big financial institutions and wealth managers, the Black Rocks of this world, and say to them, you're to generate us a 6% return over the next 15, 20 years. Construct, a port, uh, invest in assets globally that generate a return. So you start by debt financing it, and then through time you can repay it. And, we, and it's compound interest. It's mathematics, right? If you can generate a return at 6% and you're only paying interest of one, you, you can you eventually... You get rich very quickly. You get rich very quickly. So within 15 years' time, you've got a pool of assets like the Norwegians do. The thing there is, and then what we're saying is, give a share of that to the 60 70% of the population who don't have any assets. Give them a stake in the system. And then they can use it for, whether it's for education, whether it's to, 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 to put a deposit down on a house, whether it's for health, whether it's for, to support their pensions. In that way, you're, you're, it's, it's a, you haven't raised any taxes. We've got the means to do it. And if the private sector can do that to generate returns, which the state... They which, which they do. Which they do. Why can't the state do it on behalf of the population? Now... 
I think this is a beautiful idea because it's simple, but it's also what you're doing is, this is what rich people do, copy them. That's what you're basically saying. It's inheritance is how I... If it, yeah. A right. national inheritance. So, so the, yeah. right. So why do you think there is such reticence in the mainstream of people who run central banks, mm. departments of finance, our own treasury management folk, right? Yeah. Who say it's all good to borrow to build a bridge. Yeah. But it's not good to... And a bridge actually creates nothing. Yeah. This is the crazy thing. You know, the Russians tried to build lots and lots of bridges and the place collapsed, yeah. right? They had too many bridges, right? <laughs> but to yeah. borrow all this money to buy Apple shares, for example, yeah. is a bad idea. What, yeah. what, what do you think psychologically? Because what we're talking about is mindset shifts. I think, I mean, I'd love to know what you think and, and, and Mark as well, but my feeling, the more I, I've been speaking to policymakers like yourself for 15, 20 years, um, they're conservative creatures. And like, like all human beings, their greatest fear is looking stupid, right? So you wait until somebody else does it. And when it looks stupid because you're not doing it, they'll do it. And, and, and a lot of it, though, is, is, is people are not very aware. I mean, the Singaporeans are doing it. The Norwegians are doing it. I think you're going to see more and more countries looking at these ideas. I wouldn't be surprised if the British do it. Yeah, because the Brits are usually... Quite, quite advanced in these things. They're prepared to take risks. But the idea that, so you yeah. create you create the wealth fund, right? Yeah. And if you look at the numbers in Ireland, I mean, the wealth inequality here, income inequality is is pretty good. And the right. system works hard to yeah. tax the wealthy and blah, blah, blah. But wealth inequality is appalling. It's, yeah. uh, you know, the, the concentration of wealth in the top five and the top 15% is shocking, right? Yeah. It's uh, the top 5% own 53% of the wealth. And I think the top 15% own the other 70. So what we're saying is 85% of people in this country only own 30% yeah. of the wealth. So what you're saying is we create this wealth and then we give it to people. That's right. It's Just like give an, it. it's like a national inheritance. Why should only rich people have an inheritance? You know, because I, I, I'm an economist, I know that there should be, we should have really high inheritance taxes, but they're the most unpopular thing, people. But so if people are in favor, you know, and, and, and we like to leave things to our children or that idea, why shouldn't there be a national inheritance? The state can invest on your behalf. I think that if, if the state can provide us with education, with health, why can't the state provide people with a minimum quantity of assets? We've got the ability to create wealth. We've got the balance sheets to do it. Yeah. I mean, we know the numbers are. It's it's it balances. So it's just it's just in your in, in your head. It's it's simply a mindset. Yeah, it's set. a failure of the mind. It's a failure of imagination. It's a, ex exactly. It's a failure not of, not of yeah. economics, not of finance, of imagination. Mark. Also, there's a little bit more than that. There's also a bit of duplicity. So you hear this in the media all the time. Well, we're borrowing all this money now, but what happens if interest rates go up? Here's why this is stunningly disingenuous. It doesn't all come due at once. right? You issue different bonds of different lengths of different maturities. If I remember right, the average British debt is about, a maturity is about 11 years or something, right? So, and, and about one seventeenth of the total debt stock comes up for renewal at any point in time. And that just means this is not this thing where suddenly you're going to be over 300 billion extra a month. It's just nonsense. So why are people basically deliberately misleading us on this? Well, that goes back to the, the maldistribution of wealth. If we think about it just now, we have this huge panic over inflation, right? Oh my God, there's inflation everywhere. Martin Sandu at the Financial Times has a wonderful piece uh, on this, which you can, you can get off the website, where he goes through the evidence on this. And ultimately, it's all nonsense. 
Why are prices rising? Because we had a pandemically induced supply and demand shock that shut down a bunch of factories. Now they're opening up and everybody wants to spend money, prices go up. We had this after World War II. Oh no, it's the 1970s all over again. Really? Where are the Arab oil shocks? Where are the strong trade unions demanding more and more wage increases? They're not there. So what this is at the end, again, is a kind of class politics, whereby those people who have made off with all the cream for the past 15 years are acutely aware of the fact that me and people like Eric and I are saying, you know what? You think you should share it a little bit. Governments might come after you with taxes, but we want some of your equity. We want to share in the upside that you've had to yourself for such a long time. And some people don't like that. And Mark, your other issue is the digital tax. Explain that to me. So very simple way to think about it is uh, every now and again, the government gets told by the, the boffins and the companies that run mobile phone networks that we can do more faster if we have an, an even bigger bit of the sky, 5G. Yeah. So what do you do? You basically cut the sky into bands and you call them so-and-so megahertz to so-and-so megahertz. And you put that up for auction and you say, for 25 years, you can have this bandwidth through this bandwidth to do all the stuff that you want to do. And you give us X billion. And they go, okay. So what you're doing is you're selling a property, right? The sky, because believe it or not, governments own the sky. And then in exchange for that, we get mobile phone services, but we also get the revenue from the exchange of the property, right? Now, if you think about going on Facebook, what is Facebook? It's a platform. So as Silicon Valley often will tell you, if it's free, you're the product. Because what you're actually doing every time you use a keyboard is you're putting data into their systems that is the fuel for their profits. So what you're doing is you're taking a property right, your information, and handing it over for free so that they can monetize it and weaponize it over in ways that you have no control. Wouldn't it be better if we treated it like a mobile phone spectra? You just say to the population, opt in or opt out. If you opt in, you might have to pay five bucks a week for Facebook because they'll try and be crappy to you, but ultimately they can't be that crappy to you because it's all network and scale. If you stick with the free version, you don't get our dividend. Well, what's our dividend? Well, we're going to sell all of our data to Facebook. Now, they have the right to harvest data through a national data trust for a 10-year period. And if you're in it, We'll take that money that we get and we'll put it in our sovereign wealth fund and we'll use that to generate even more returns so that 10 years from now, your kids can get an inheritance. It all hangs together. So let's come back to this idea because, again, you know, I'm nodding my head, uh, which is a Pavlovian response to an idea that I think (laughs) makes sense, right? Okay, in my head, I'm trying to figure it out. This digital tax seems so obvious to me. And the alternative is the profound enrichment of a tiny amount of people based on our privacy. Yeah. This is, you know, it's... it's, yeah. it's so, so what we're saying is privacy counts. Privacy is worth something. And again, I come back to it. Why an idea like this, which would be amazingly popular. It's the yeah. interesting thing about the yeah. Wealth Fund. Yeah. It's amazingly popular. Absolutely. You, you go and... Go on the late, late and explain I that. And they'd be hooting and hollering, right? I, it's really... Absolutely, yeah. This is really popular. Yeah. I like there's, there's no downside here. Yeah. The only downside no. is if you own uh, Facebook shares right now. That's right? it. Of which is a tiny minority. It's a windfall tax. So, Do you remember like Gordon Brand in the utilities? It will be a yeah. one-off tax on them because you've got to pay for the data. So yeah. why is this ball not being picked up yeah. by a centre party, a centre-left party? It could be a centre-right. I don't give a damn yeah. what their complexion is. And said... 
This is the future, guys. Why, yeah. why the inertia? I mean, that's a great question. I, it, I, I think things are changing, though, and this is what does make me optimistic. Because I, th- and I think, again, I think a lot of parties across the world now are looking at Biden. People, because I, I think the, the effect of Biden is easy to underestimate. Because not only are people going, my God, I never thought he would do it. Yes. Because, you know, that was incongruous. But also that people are going, not only, he, he can do it, it can be done. And if it works electorally, if it makes them popular, you know, there, it goes back to what incentivizes you as a politician. But I mean, you made this point, which I was very ignorant about, was the role that, that the Fianna Fáil originally established its popularity by building houses. That's what it did. Yeah. Fianna Fáil, I remember, all, all around here, like all around Dunleary, if you look at all the big corporation estates built in the 30s and 40s and 50s, where yeah. we hadn't the arse in our trousers, yeah. it was largely driven by Fianna Fáil. Yeah. Okay? So what they did was they ensured, and, and you heard people you know, in the 80s when I first became aware of politics, yeah. people would be a Fianna Fáil family, and, why? and they'd say, because they got your man a house. Well, they the built thing. us a house. Well, this, and I think this is where, if, if this can happen, you know, it'll be like dominoes. It's a yeah, bit, like one good idea yeah, comes in and you get sticky. That's right. A generation and says... And you copy. You know, and the great thing about humans is we are the greatest imitators. That's, that's what, what we, we do. do. That's, that's no, we it. are. We, we're imitators. Yeah. So you think that Biden... Because what interests me, and Mark, maybe you'll be able to comment on this, is the more crazy the Republican mud that they're throwing at the Democrats, okay, the more I think the Democrats are actually winning. Right? And at the moment, they're trying to throw all sorts of crazy mud. And like, look at Kam- Kamala Harris, what they're trying to do to her. Right, yeah, yeah. And what they're looking at is because they fear this idea that if Biden is right, yeah. the Democrats could be elected for a long time. Because interestingly, and you'll say speak to this, Mark, Reagan was right yeah. in, the, in the gut of Americans. And the Republicans, who couldn't get elected to save their life, started to get elected and elected and elected. So we look at the same sort of dynamic here, Mark. Yes, and that's why they're fighting so hard with gerrymandering districts. That's why they're fighting so hard to basically put taxes on renewables, right? And is it ultimately self-defeating? Quite possibly, but surveys still show that 60 to 70% of Republicans, when asked, think the election was stolen. And that was 75 million voters. So it's a very large number of people to draw on. Plus, you know, you have a huge bias in the Senate towards uh, more rural states rather than urban environments, etc. So it's it's not easy, right? Put it that way. I agree entirely with what Eric says about Biden and Biden's demonstration effect for everybody else. But here's the, the more hopeful but disruptive story for the US. So I put this in Foreign Policy magazine a few months back. It's called The Death of the Carbon Coalition, but I'll just give you the riff here. If, if you want to understand Republican politics, you have to understand that in 1971, one in seven jobs in the US were in the car industry. And if you put all the associated supply chain bits of that together, one in three jobs were directly tied to the production, transportation, and manipulation of carbon. If you look at red states, they're all still carbon states. Texas, New Mexico, North Dakota, Alaska. If you look at Louisiana, Alabama, it's petrochemicals, plastics. West Virginia coal, they're fighting the inevitability of what economists call stranded assets. As the rest of the world, whether it's China, whether it's the EU, whether it's everyone moves to a post-carbon world, the value of those assets goes to zero. 
and they're doubling down because it's very difficult to turn those assets into anything else. A pile of oil is a pile of oil. It's the definition of a specific asset. So how do you give up on that? What do you do? Well, the sensible thing to do would be to embrace the notion of a Green New Deal, to partner with the Democrats, to spend an absolute ton of money making carbon transitions in the most red states first as proof of concept, and to invest. But to do that would require a bipartisanship, which is the exact opposite of what the Republicans base their electoral fortunes on. So they know what they're facing. They know they're doubling down on a dying model, but their only strategy is to double down on the double down. Eventually, however, not only nature bats last, carbon bats last. And it won't be long before that becomes too expensive to maintain. So Biden may open the door, but it's not going to be his efforts alone that, you know, basically turn the US around. So can I conclude, are you both optimists? You've written the book. The book has been very, very well received. Very, very well, incredibly well reviewed, sold very well. It's landed in people's consciousness. There's a buzz about, there's a buzz about the ideas. What do you think the, the next sort of leg in this type of mindset change we're talking about? I, I am, a, I'm an optimist. And, and, and I think economics is changing. I know Robert, you're talking Robert. to Stephanie Kelton or you've, yeah. and, and, and I, I think, there is a mindset change. People are, the, the political system globally is recognizing that things are possible that need to be done. I think the change that's happening with, in, in the private sector with respect to the environment is astonishing. What I'm witnessing in markets in my day job is, is an amazing transformation. That makes me very optimistic. The only bit that I would urge caution on is still Europe, to be honest, because I don't think that mindset change, you know, Mark and I, Mark even more so, but I talk to Northern European economists. And uh, I'm not convinced that Northern Europe has changed its belief about the role of fiscal policy. They're still uh, orthodox, yeah, Germanic. and that does worry me. As an that Italian, it should. It as does. a half Italian, it yeah. should. As a half Irish, half Italian, it should worry you a lot. It worries me a got, lot. We did the two sides of <laughs> crises that we didn't get. Mark, last word on this before we go. Well, as a Scottish Catholic from the original line of Scots, not you Irish that came and invaded us in the 19th century, but the 6% that wasn't thrown into the sea during the Reformation, I don't have an optimistic bone in my body. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, I can actually get behind this. No, let's stick with the anger thing. The anger thing is this. What Biden is doing is, and what all elites around the world are doing in this mindset change, is they were scared witless, yeah. that's the polite word, by what's been happening over the past 10 years in politics. And they know that they are one or two elections from irrelevance unless they materially change the lives of the people that they have taken for granted and ignored for the past 30 years. Biden's big spending bet is move real wages up for the bottom 60% without creating too much inflation, then they don't go populist. If he's right, you reduce the anger. Then we can do a lot of the stuff that we need to do. If he fails, oh, I'm very happy with my pessimism. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. We leave it at that. I remember somebody said, you guys will probably know the quote, is it said about the role of the leader is to understand the anxiety of the people and do something about it. So at least he understands the anxiety of the people and he's doing something about it. Well, listen, the, the book is Angrynomics. It's an absolute gem. It's mercifully short as well, Thank which you. is always good because we owe decent sized fonts as well. Much, much more difficult to write a short book uh, than a long book. Uh, and hopefully we'll have the pair of you back 
in the room, Mark, this time next year. We'd love that. Eric, Mark, thank you both very much. That's it for the economic side. We'll talk to you very soon. Just a quick note to say thank you to all our Patreon supporters. And if you fancy supporting us on Patreon, you can check us out at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.